Welcome to the State of Everything Extra Tim. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. How's it going, Tim? Hi, Paul. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. How's your lockdown? Uh, uh, lockdown? I, I cut sad notice. Okay. For, for, for some of us, this is life as normal. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty much. I, I haven't noticed much difference myself. For those, those of us that are remote working Jedi and have been for the last several years, it's it's same old, same old. I don't know when you first started doing it, but when I first started, it was very hard to stay away from the fridge, basically. And it's like making endless cups of tea and and stuff like that and planning your day. But one piece of advice I got given very early on, which I thought was a really good one, it was to resist the temptation of working from the kitchen or from um, every area of the house mm. and to designate one area as a work area. And the leave, man cave. And just leave everything in there and because then when you come out, you have a break. Otherwise, you just yeah. see it all the time, which I thought was a really good piece of advice that... Yeah, the, the the only the only real problem one has with sort of self employment is is the continual sexual harassment. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> now we've got a few questions. I think we'll jump to those because yeah, they, yeah. they may lead at the conversation anyway. Um, so I'm going to read a couple because they're very similar, and we can sort of handle them um, at the same time if if that's all right with you. Sure. Um, so we got a message from Roland Hambury on the Twitter, which said, thanks for the insightful and entertaining podcast, guys. Well, thank you very much for that. I'm considering buying my first property. What are your views on property within a portfolio? And what are your thoughts on the direction of house prices? Would you begin, sorry, would you view property more favorably if we begin to see inflation? Now, just before you answer that, I'm going to add into the mix because it's a similar question. Uh, a question that I mentioned last time from Force Majeure uh, on YouTube, who said, a question for both Paul and Tim, please, as you may have both got different approaches, taking in mind that coronavirus, at least temporarily, is providing some uncertainty and may change how life becomes afterwards. If either of you had between a hundred and three hundred thousand as a re retail investor, that's sterling, uh, to spend for, for providing an income in the future, would you spend all on speculating, learning how to trade, uh, utilize a value investing fund, or purchase a property for rental income. Um, maybe a mixture of all, or use one strategy to supplement another. Many thanks. So I think they're kind of tied together. Sure. Um, one's a more broader question than the other. What What do you think, Tim? Um, all good questions and probably no easy answers. My gut feel. I mean, the the, the thing about this this crisis or predicament. Uh, is things are moving so quickly. Every time you think you've got a handle on stuff, it, it, the game has changed. So I think that's that's why you're seeing, say, the stock market sort of having these wild gyrations, sort of up five to ten percent in a day, and then down five to ten percent in a day. And it's just, you know, markets are, are, are trying to do what markets do, which is sort of price in the future. But it's just so uncertain. I mean, we've never been here before. Um, it's just a trite thing to say, but it's, it's true. An example of that, an example of the magnitude of the problem, you may have seen there's a graph that's been circulating on, on Twitter for a day or two now, and it's a chart of the US unemployment figures. And it has, and it's a, it's a, it's a mobile chart. So what it does is it shows you the figures going back to, I think, the late 60s or early 70s. And you see the sort of the peaks and the troughs in the monthly data. 
and then you see the last you know month mm. and the scale. So he goes from like whatever it is, if how many hundred thousand to like six point six million. You go, mm. whoa, let's no whoa. So so it it's it's not it's not easy to. I mean, in in any investment, I think at the moment, in any asset allocation decision. You're having to try and anticipate so much that is simply uncertain. Um, anyway, so that's enough of the caveats. My gut feel on on property. Firstly, it depends on. I think we're probably talking residential property here. I mean, it's presumed that it's residential. Yeah, My good gut point. Feel, actually, yeah. yeah. So I would discriminate. For example, trying to read through this this mess, I would dis- discriminate quite starkly between commercial and residential. I think commercial property is an accident waiting to happen because I think that the one of the I suspect that one of the long term uh, outcomes of this is that people will think, well, you know what, I did remote working for a while, and you know what, it didn't turn out to be all that bad. So why that? Why the? Why the hell am I going to go back to an office and commute and etc. 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 There's just no need for it. You can get by without it. You can, you know, hum, humans are adaptable. They are, you know, they adapt. Mm. So I think I think the implications for commercial property are not good. For residential. Um, my sense is also that in the in the near to medium term, it's probably not a great outlook because people just you know like the whole financial system is kind of like teetering. So there's just going to be less money available. People are going to have less money. People are going to eat into their savings and so forth. So that you know that the the what Keynes called the animal spirits just aren't going to be circulating with quite the you know the robustness that that we're all used to. That said, then yeah, I guess I default to the sort of the the standard tropes of you know location, location, location. So some areas may well prosper, some some not. My gut feel in relation to London, let's say London and stroke the southeast, is again trying to read through to the bigger picture. If if what I think happens to globalization brackets a reverse of it brackets turns out to happen, then you have to assume that there's just going to be less demand for premium property stuff because the kind of globalized high net worth elite just aren't going to be traveling as much in the future if at all so on that basis i think the the top end gets a whack um whereas uh again it comes out to the location argument i think certain places may turn out to be highly desirable namely places that aren't in the middle of central london where you know everyone's currently sort of you know every everyone who's out on the street is you know is social distancing and looking at each other with a sort of wary eye that would argue in my mind for you know a premium to remoteness so yeah. it, it it's all it's all relative but uh, that that's my field so basically probably commercial and residential takes a bit of a hit but i i i i i can give you the characteristics of places that individual places that i think will do better than others and they're going to be the ones that are just fundamentally more desirable to live in and if you were looking to invest between 100k and 300k would there be a i mean of course from your perspective you would invest it i'm assuming and please obviously tell us in the way that you invest in your fund right because you, sure. you yeah yeah well well in our managed account so we have one fund which is a global equity value fund and that's that's taken a beating along with every other equity investment in the world over the last uh, 6 weeks or so but in the fullness of time, I, I expect some of the positions will probably recover. But in terms of the, the discretionary business that we offer, which is a full service approach, it's multi-asset. So you're right. So to, to answer that, um, I think that the, 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 the caveat has to be diversify because, you know, as, as someone amusingly and archly you know, tweeted a, a week or two ago, 
um, the trades we make tonight will echo in eternity. And and I thought that was quite 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 sweet and funny. But the the point is, the decisions you make about your investments right now will have a huge impact on your future returns and and risks. Yeah. So there's no point in rushing at this. There's there's every point in having a sort of a sensible. So there's no rush, but having a sensible sort of well thought out approach. But it strikes me that given the nature of, I mean, we don't even put it this way. We've been advising our clients over the course of the last few weeks that the stuff you own within a portfolio ought to be stuff that you would be comfortable owning if the markets would have shut down. Yeah. Because that's the, 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 that, 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 that describes the severity of what we're currently experiencing. I'm not suggesting for one moment that I advocate closing markets because I don't, but I'm just saying you know, the authorities are already doing so many impossible things before breakfast that you know, closing the markets would be, frankly, the least of our concerns. They got very close to it in 2008, and I wouldn't be surprised if the markets lurch again that they start talking about it again. And the problem with that is it's all, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if the market starts to sense that there's going to be a closure, then they start dumping stocks and then it just leads into this vicious circle. So we, they've got to be careful with doing things like that. But what, what I'm getting at, I suppose, in, in terms of saying, you know, be, you know, you should only own what you'd be comfortable owning if the markets were to close. It, it, it means you prioritise stuff. Yeah. So to go back to the question, yes, we would. My my advice for what it's worth would be, if you're looking at whether it's for income or for capital growth or a combination of the two, and clearly in the UK context, if you're investing through something like an ISA or a, a pension, a sort of tax advantaged wrapper. Uh, environment, then to an extent it's academic because you know there's no there's no not yet uh, any sort of taxable um, you know event. Uh, so you can you you can be agnostic as to whether you're looking for income or growth or a combination of the two. So we look for a combination of the two. Um, that said, yeah, it would be entirely consistent then for us to be saying what we how we're already investing and the way we're already investing is across three assets, yeah, asset types, namely. Value stocks, and if you want a definition, cheap but high quality listed businesses that are cash flow, hugely cash flow generative with little or no debt. So that's 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 box number one. Box number two would be systematic trend following funds, which are momentum strategies, and I should add are really coming into their own. So I'm not going to mention any names, but there's one fund. Uh, well, there are there are several many there are many funds that that offer this this service. They're called CTAs in the states or commodity trading advisors or managed futures, but they're all effectively momentum uh, approaches. These guys are having a field day, as as to be fair, they should yes. because they you know they were out in the wilderness in sort of performance terms for the last few years. Frankly, because there weren't there were insufficient strong trends across multiple asset markets. But now, if you look through to the the global environment. I, it's not just wishful thinking on my part. It's not just book talking on my part. It seems to me that you know, if if there were a lack of price trends before, well, do we think there's going to be big trends in the future in both directions, uh, in interest rates, equity indices, hard commodities, soft commodities, and currencies? The answer has to be well. I, it, that would not be a surprise if that were to happen. Yeah. So trend followers definitely make sense. I think in this environment, you know, if you can access them, the the problem is that they're not easy. To access for retail investors. That said, you can then practice the strategy yourself if you give it enough uh, practice and 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 uh, training. And 
Paul, you know, I think I think we both know someone on this call who can give advice about technical analysis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then so the third box would be um, what, what, what and these boxes haven't changed uh, yes. over the last few years. So value equities plus trend following plus precious metals, bullion and also um, precious metals miners with little or no debt. Um, because uh, unless I've called this hugely wrong, if there's ever a time in human history you want to own gold, that time is now. Now, that, that logic may be wrong, but it strikes me that, okay, so we're currently at the, in the early stages of a the biggest deflationary shock in world history. But that said, the so far the governmental response everywhere has been comparably extraordinary in terms of the size of fiscal and monetary stimulus. So if this doesn't end in inflation, then, you know, I'm the prince of, I'm, I'm the prince of China. Right. Um, so from my perspective, I, I think that's a very interesting and, and uh, uh, you know, comprehensive answer. I would just say that um, training yourself in, trading or investing we, we've discussed this before actually and it really comes down to whatever you you're most comfortable with so you know some people love charts some people don't um people like value investing some people don't it's it's really down to what works for you but what i would also suggest you do is have a look on twitter at millionaire mentors comments mm. because virtually everything he says um and obviously i don't see everything he says but everything i read that he says um, I, I tend to agree with, and it's all about educating yourself, um, thinking for yourself, preparing for yourself. And if you've got a pot of money, then use some of that to to do that. And then um, then looking at property per se is has been a great investment, but whether it will continue to be depends very much on whether we, like you say, get a huge deflationary environment. And if we do, there will be a lot of forced selling of people who've bought mm. 20, 30 houses. I, mm. I saw a comment on Twitter. I think it was Hamish Capital, actually, uh, but I'm sorry if, if that's not correct, but um, it was a few days ago about people who bought like 30 or, you know, 30 odd properties and rented them out with Airbnb and now it, it mm. like stuck in a position. I mentioned this before about my worry about the government going after people who've got a property portfolio because they're easy targets when it comes to trying to recoup some of this money that they're spending. Now, I have no idea whether they're going to do that. And if we do have a massive inflationary environment, yeah, maybe property will do extremely well. But it might do extremely well in price terms, but in, in taxation terms, that might be another problem, which yeah. is why I love... So the, that's a very fair point, very fair point. So I like the idea of being able to, you know, in order to buy and sell a property, you it, it takes time it takes money to do that i mean it takes a lot of money to move property for lots of reasons but it doesn't take much to initiate trades and that's why i think being able to express that view as a market trade might be a better way because then you can decide to get out or hedge or do do all those other things or a combination thereof like you mentioned so um we we've got to be prepared for some some serious economic woes coming up um let's just hope they don't happen but we've got to be prepared for it but i think stepping into the the market too quickly 
um, you know, it would pay just to wait a little bit just to see whether we're going to get deflation or inflation. I think that's a very fair point, particularly in relation to liquidity, because the the, the big problem with property, apart from any other aspect, is that it's an illiquid asset. You know, you just can't, like, as you say, if you if the choice is between putting on a trade in a market where you've got liquidity, say, in future financial futures versus plonking a deposit on a property and waiting how many months for the, the the trade to to settle and you know take delivery of the property and all blah 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 you know we're not comparing apples with apples so um I, I, the point about liquidity is, is is well taken i think there's there's another big big point to make which is the the stuff that has worked up until now may well not work going forward so i think the it's one of the characteristics of the very best investors slash traders is the ability to change change their mind yes. quickly and then act on it. So, for example, a credit where credit's due, this is a, um, effectively a shout out to Anton Tonev, who we had on the, the podcast very recently. Yes. And he, he writes a, a, an essay, a regular essay called Beyond Overton relating to the Overton window, the, the window of acceptable social discourse, a window that's now been basically just pulverized and blown to smithereens over the course of the last couple of months. Um, his latest piece uh, is titled Stocks for the Long Run, Be Prepared to Wait. And I'm just going to give you the, just the first couple of paragraphs, and then people are welcome to try and find it online. So the first is a quote from Edwin Lefebvre, the oh, yeah. putative author of Reminiscences of a Stock Operator, which is a Thinly disguised biography of Jesse Livermore, which you've the, written that the the, um, the opening, the, yeah, the introduction the to, the introduction to, which yeah. is, I'm I'm so impressed about uh, that. I have, uh, I have to say, of all the things I'm proud of, that that may be right towards the top of the list. But anyway, I digress. So this is by Edwin Lefebvre, reminiscence of a stock operator, and it's a quote: "The nature of the game as it is played is such that the public should realise that the truth cannot be told by the few who know; otherwise, they cannot benefit by their knowledge." It's a rather cynical, rather cynical quote, but anyway, this is how Anton starts his piece. Now, let's read the, the opening two paragraphs. A buy-and-hold strategy on US stocks has done tremendously well in the last four decades, and especially so post-2008, when it got wrapped up in a passive investment vehicle. A look at the more distant past, as well as at other countries' stock markets, however, reveals that such a strategy does not always bear fruit, and in fact, one has to wait equally for decades to come up even. The sudden crash in the US stock market in March 2020 caused by the realisation that COVID-19 might not only freeze economic activity for much longer than first expected, but also change profoundly the way we work and consume and cause a rethink of financial regulations may herald such a new reality. And then this next bit's in bold. I expect the US stock market to post negative annualised returns in both nominal and real terms, as well as including dividends for at least the next decade. Mic drop. Right, that's quite a long time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, he, yeah. I'll, I'll, basically, so he people are, are, are welcome. Yeah, I'll welcome to sort of delve deeper into that. And it's sort of Anton's piece, not mine, but mm. I, I have a lot of respect for the thinking that's gone into it. Yeah. And basically, whether or not you agree or whatever comes to pass, I think it's a fair, a perfectly fair bet that basically what has worked up until now isn't going to work necessarily in the future. So in other words, you can't come into this crisis with the same thinking that, that with the same thinking that what previously worked is going to continue to work because I don't think you can extrapolate like that anymore. This is, you know, the, I think that the, the thing that the biggest transformation for me has been to adjust to a new plausible reality of how things transpire. And we don't know. So this is all supposition. It's all you know, we're all just, it's all hypothesizing as things stand. 
but there are so so many extraordinary things that could yet come to pass. One of the biggest of which is, you know, we're all used to a globalized world. How about a world that deglobalizes in a hurry? Because we're living it now. Yeah, indeed. With regard to people working at home and and not going into offices and and stuff like that, when this new technology, Skype, etc., came out, a lot of people said that would happen with regard to business meetings, but we found that actually people do want to meet other people to talk. Yeah, we're, we're social animals. Yeah. But, I mean, Rory Sutherland's been very good on this, uh, that actually so much of meeting stuff is basically just virtue signaling, mm. um, totem pole climbing bullshit. Yeah. It's, it's, in other words, it's not, it's not, it has no economic value. It's, it's basically signifying, well, I'm important, therefore I need to fly to Frankfurt. Yes, yes. So it's less about the actual communication, more about... And more the, what it says about people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon in the same way as he talks about brands and brand value. But that, that's, um, that's an interesting point, though, that it could change. It could just, people could just enjoy the way they're working and want to work like that. Um, that, you, that you said. Earlier. I mean, so let's go a bit further and say, you know, when when you know, hopefully this 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 forced lockdown is you know is 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 reversed in you know as, as speedily as possible. When when we come out of it, I mean, although I accept this is like an existential crisis for the hospitality industry, for restaurants, for pubs, you know, all of that stuff, it could yet be that. With the pent up demand for social <laughs> gathering is going to be so huge, you know that fortune. Although I appreciate that fortunes are going to be lost, fortunes may also be made on the other side of this. Yes, there'll be a, a greater appreciation of it. Um, so, so again, it's 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 it, it's like that. I mean, there's a great what I mean. Warren Buffett is the sort of source of so many good quotes, but one of the best ones is cash plus courage to invest in a crisis is priceless. Having cash, having liquidity right now. I mean, what a what a dream scenario for people! It's just whether you step in now, or whether you wait a bit. Yeah, longer. well, that's that, a, yeah, exactly. That's, that's a time. That's a timing issue. That's a timing issue, and it's it's a big one, really, because it's because we did see a, a buy signal short term a couple of weeks ago in the markets. So they've held up, but I don't know now. It's like they, there's we're we're sort of halfway between where it bounced from and the recent high, if that makes sense. So we're not extending that gain, those gains, and we're not falling either and it's it's like we're on a knife edge here so it, and to say it could go either ways i know it's you know sometimes that doesn't that's not particularly helpful but it it's less it's really less clear as to whether we're going to get a big downdraft but so, one interesting thing is it's like stocks like tesla which you'd expect to be much lower still not lower you know they've bounced you know they had it had that massive squeeze up mm. um well it's higher than the point from which it started that massive squeeze up, if that makes sense. So it had mm. a massive rally, collapsed back down, but it's now sort of bouncing up again, which is which is really head scratching. Um, so we we have to see. So there are some there's some mixed signals out there. Some that say like the banks look awful and the stocks of the banks look just awful. Um, and and haven't really turned around yet, which is a big worry. Well, have you seen that banks have basically been stopped from paying dividends now? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but the the charts look terrible before anyway, before they announced that. I, what and, I what I don't what I don't understand is why anyone was dumb enough to be owning banks in the first place because their their finances, their balance sheets, their reporting is so opaque and has been consistently opaque since at least two thousand and seven eight. Um, it's like you know, investing in fog. 
Yeah, I guess I guess it was the dividends that that uh, people were attracted to. But um, so this yeah. is this is this is why I say you know don't go on the basis of this has worked, therefore it will work because yeah. those that, that that that's that's you know that's ancient history now. Yeah, I mean, but there is a I guess a theory there that if you um, if the banks are asking for help but also have the cash to get through it as well, um, then. It's, it's almost like the financial crisis over again. They've they've given them they've been given a boost, but actually they've got reserves anyway, mm. and we're in a good place. So so we shall see. We'll see how quickly they start to bounce back. And I would say the interest rate cyclical stocks will be the will give you a heads up on when this crisis is is easing, um, if it, it does ease within the short term. Um, so. Another question, which I missed, and I have to apologise from Joe Harris, because I know he's a, a regular listener, um, said, um, when we made the comment about low, I made the comment, I think, about low oil prices um, and how it was good for everyone. He's made the point, of course, it is good for everyone, but not for those who work in oil and gas, mm. um, which is a, a very fair point. But I also think that oil and, oil and gas is such a valuable commodity to the world that I just don't see them staying. It won't stay low for a long time. It just can't. So um, I'd say it's one of those things that that there will be opportunistic buying. Um, yeah, so it's basically a call on a functioning economy. So if you think yeah. the economy's gone forever, then well, you don't buy anything. But yeah, if you, but if you that, think it's going to recover, then you buy this. You know, there's the, the, some value there because it's it has use. Yes, it has exactly. utility. Exactly. And so a question he he asked that I missed, which is why I'm apologising about this. It was. Um, is it a once in a generation chance to buy silver at the current gold silver ratio or a continuing devaluation of silver? Um, I don't know. It's the honest answer. So the, the, the fudge um, response I'm going to give is I own both. Um, so we, we, for example, use one of the things we use as a vehicle called Sprott Gold. I think it's called Sprott Gold and Silver Trust. It used to be Central Fund of Canada, but it's basically a, a bullion fund in Canada um, with bullion assets vaulted in, I think, CIBC Toronto. Um, but basically, it's roughly 50% gold, 50% silver. So we, we, we kind of, you know, we, we, we're not making a, a judgment call on, on either. We just want to own both. Uh, I, I, I don't claim to know why the silver ratio is, is at such a, a, a stretched level. Uh, my only conclusion would be that because silver has, um, to my understanding, is that silver has more industrial applications than gold, it's being whacked because you know the the, the global economy got thrown in the freezer. Um, but in the fullness of time, although I'd have no strong views, and I just like to own both. Yeah, there's a, there's another um, idea here that I think deserves further investigation, and that is that the gold and silver price that you see on the exchange is very different to actually owning gold and silver outright. Those prices, there is a, a differential, and. You've always advocated um, gold that's not hyp uh, rehypothecated. And Correct. Yeah, it's not lent out to it, other to other investors. Exactly, and owning real re the real asset, and there is a big difference. So, I don't. I'm not an expert in in that, but I would say that you may find trying to buy physical gold and silver. It's impossible. It, it, well, actually, that's interesting it, it, you say it's, that. It's not there. It's not there, it's, apparently. It's not, so what is going on? So if you can't buy gold and silver, yet the prices are not, the exchanges aren't reflecting those prices, you know, this is, gold and silver are much, are in reality, much higher. And therefore, um, you, you need to express your 
bullish view in a different way, if that makes sense. So um, my, my, my credit here goes to a guy called Paul Malcrease, who I've met a few times, who used to write something called the Thunder Road Report. Um, and I remember this, this is one of those hoary old quotes that I keep, keep chuntering on with. Um, and he wrote probably a decade ago now, uh, that quote, the next leg up in gold will prove to be a religious experience for those people who find themselves short. The, the problem is that I think that the, the figures as I, I got this, I think via the reserve bank of India. And again, it's probably 10 year, 10 years old or longer but basically strongly suggested that there are, for every ounce of proper, genuine physical gold, there are roughly 100 paper claims on that gold. So in other words, you've got all these banks and hedge funds and you know financial players and dark web finance and all the rest playing games in the futures market, but those, those futures transactions in gold are never or hardly ever settled for physical delivery. They're all settled for dollars. So if you want to muck around and play games, you can, in, you know, you can basically sell short um, gold futures indefinitely because you're not settling for physical delivery, you're settling for, for dollars. And of course, if you're a bank, you can come to that money into thin air anyway. So there's all kinds of shenanigans going on in the derivative market. Wait until someone actually holds and demands physical delivery, then that will sort the sheep out from the you know, from the whatever the phrase is, I've now, now <laughs> forgotten. Now forgotten. That'll sort the the men from the boys. Um, so yeah, it comes down to basically, it, you own physical or or you don't own it. Yeah, and um, I I got a message from Shane McAvoy asking me about the the technical chart on gold. And to be fair, it's it's short term. It's consolidating, but it's it's broadly still bullish and it has mm. been for a while so there's definitely that disparity with silver just as sort of te- a, te- a technical point which is um because I've, I've probably spent as much time thinking about gold as anything else over the last 10 20 years if you're looking at gold uh, and asking what's the dollar price of gold that's looking at the through the wrong end of a telescope the question is not what gold is worth in dollars the question is, what's the dollar worth? Because gold is consistent, whereas because yeah, exactly, because gold is consistent. So an ounce is an ounce is an ounce, and that's that's the you know the uniform thing. What's the value of a dollar? You know, there's no there's no scientific definition for a value of a dollar. We know what the value. We know what we can define a kilogram or a liter or a meter. You know, we can define all these things. So a kilogram used to be you know the mass of a given amount of material at a given temperature at a given altitude in a laboratory north of Paris. But what's the dollar worth? Yeah. This, this is the question I think people should, should finally be asking because we're, we've, you know, someone once said to me, it was very, a much brighter person than me, said, if you're trying to value gold using the dollar, it's like trying to measure a suit using a piece of elastic. I think that was Ronnie Sturfley who said that as well. Yeah, there's a lots of bright, bright gold guys out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, but it's absolutely true that this is the, the, the point. This is kind of like a paradigm shift that people need to try and embrace. It's, mm. not, about, it's not about gold. It's about the dollar. Indeed. Indeed. So, um, or, or, or insert any other currency that you, you prefer to, prefer to, to use. But um, the, the, the point is the same because you can price gold in whatever you like. So I know this is asked, Tim, but I got, I got this message and I, and I think it'd be good to hear what you've got a bit more of what you would have to say about this. but um, So it's from Hetel Patel, who says, 
I think it's completely outrageous that you, and that's me, by the way, infer, <laughs> infer that the Republic of India does not follow the rule of law. You ignore the growth of IT-related industries that have dominated the Indian GDP in conjunction with global demand for outsourcing. Look around the CEOs of Silicon Valley startups within the industry and e-commerce. There are a fair amount of Indians. Well, I'm not denying any of that. Um, the Constitution of India intended to, for India to be a country governed by the rule of law. It provides that the constitution shall be the supreme power in the land and the legislative and executive derive their authority from the constitution. Let me remind you that their penal code and tax revenue collection system is based on the British one. Um, I mean, all I said was, I'm not sure about that. Okay. <laughs> well, but, have you have you been thoroughly chastened by that? I have. have, back, I have. back in your back in your box. Back in my box. I mean, look. <laughs> I, all I say, all I thought was it needed further examination. And uh, I've been to India a few times, and and I've spoken to people uh, about doing business in India. And admittedly, that was my last visit was about five years ago, and a lot has changed. But I didn't think that structurally much had changed um, from when I'd been there in the 90s. And I think the only way to test these things is to set up a business and, and and do some business there and see how difficult or easy it is. And my my only reservation was that you may be trading one set of problems for a different set of problems if you move from China to India. Mm. And it may pay to look around. Um, or indeed, what I advocated was, I think, we we have plenty of of you know, very smart brains here. Um, why can't we just develop more of those products that we need ourselves? I mean, as as actually he goes on to say, because that's not all that um, Hettle sent to me. Uh, you know, Land Rover being owned by an Indian um, business is is like, well, why why is that? Why can't we own it and deal? And and um, and run it as a profitable company. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, undoubtedly, there are there are some very supremely intelligent people and hardworking and fantastic business people in India, and quite rightly so. That's you know expressed in the CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, that's not what I was saying. I was just saying you know we need to have a a, a broader discussion. He says Tim Price has probably got a better handle on this, and I think he's right. You probably no, I'm sure do. he's right. Yeah, and I'm sure, sure. <laughs> definitely right about that. So, I mean, you you suggested India as opposed to China for for all the right reasons, um, and 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 so do you. You obviously feel more strongly about this. It's 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 as much a moralistic point as anything else, and and I wholly accept that there's the world as is, and there's the world as we might like it to be. In the world as I would like it to be, we pivot to India. But you know, there's there's clearly choice, and it goes back to the point we were talking about earlier about globalization and deglobalization. You know, these are size. These are we are living through a seismic period of change, um, and it is impo literally impossible to say exactly at what will transpire. In large part because it will not just be economic factors that distinguish at where we end up. It'll all determine where we end up. It'll also be political ones. I'm not a politician. I've got no interest in being one. Um, but it, it is it, ultimately it'll be polit politics that decides how how future stuff gets done. On on a related point, for fans of John Gray, who the philosopher, uh, British philosopher John Gray, who I would argue is one of the finest essayists in the English language today, 
um, just a, a, a an FYI that he's he's got a piece out in the the New Statesman um, that's just been published called "Why This Crisis Is a Turning Point in History," and I would recommend that to to anybody. Can we have a link for that on the show notes? Yeah, and I'll share yeah, yeah. We'll put it. We'll put it in. And so the 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 the, the sub subhead is the era of peak globalization is over. For those of us not on the front line, clearing the mind and thinking how to live in an altered world is the task at hand. But everything he writes, you may or may not agree with it, but it's beautifully written. Fantastic. Look forward to that. Our next podcast is going to be Gregory Wrightstone, which I'm really looking forward to publishing. I think, Joe, you're going to enjoy that as well. Um, and it's just really just having an open mind about climate change. Mm. So that that will be up next. Thank you so much, Tim. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Thank you, Paul. Again, a pleasure for me as well. And thank you so much for all your questions. We really do appreciate it. If you do disagree with anything, we're more than happy to discuss it. So please do ask any questions and we'll talk about it on the show. The State of the Markets podcast has been hitting highs in the charts at the moment. So once again, we really appreciate all your support, your comments, and the fact that you're subscribing and engaging with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And a final shout out to Dixie DeVille for your lovely comments on YouTube too. Really appreciate it. Take care, be safe, and we'll speak to you soon. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.